millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello again, Greg Haynes here and welcome along to the 10th episode in the series of the Eurosport Full Throttle Podcast. Now, we're going on a fortnightly basis at the moment as we await any significant news on the possible resumption of motorcycle racing this year. But we had three more MotoGP races called off last week. In fact, completely cancelled this time, not just postponed. So who knows what's going to happen. In the meantime, two weeks ago on the last show, we chatted with car racing legend Mario Andretti. But we're back to our familiar surroundings of two wheels and motorbikes this week. And with us is another great. It's Mick Grant. And he'll be discussing, amongst other things, the changes he's seen over the years, some of the great bikes he's ridden and the people he's met along the way. Plus, vivid memories and very bad memories, unfortunately, of that truly awful day at Monza in Italy in 1973, on which both Jano Saarinen and Renzo Pasolini lost their lives. But first, the seven-time Isle of Man TT winner is discussing a fellow seven-time Isle of Man TT winner, as Mick Grant remembers the late Tony Rutter, who sadly died on the 24th of March earlier this year. So welcome along to Full Throttle, and let's listen in to Mick Grant. Well, Mick, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to chat with you. So much to talk about, and we're not going to have enough time in one podcast, I'm sure. But we'll have to start with Tony Rutter, won't we? The late, great Tony Rutter, who we sadly lost last month. What a great name. What a great rider. Yeah, I mean, Tony was the original hard man. Um, you know, <laughs> um, I remember my first remembrance of Tony was maybe about 1969 or 1970. I was still campaigning with Velocet, and we went down to a circuit in Wales, which I think is no longer working, called Landau. And there was Tony Rutter down there at Manx Norton with his real good mate, Barry Randall, who incidentally recently died as well. And um, they were on a different planet to what I was riding around, I'll tell you. Um, but it was just, I had a few races against him. Um, I mean, I remember the Northwest in 1975. Um, we were on the, I was on the Works 500 Kawasaki and Tony was on the 350 Yamaha. And we had a race for the full, almost for the full length of the race. Um, I don't know, seven or eight laps or something. And um, just he was just a hard man to race against, but he was fair. Um, he knew what he wanted, and if there was a bit of tarmac that he wanted, he went for it. Um, and, and just got fun to ride against. 
And then my last recollection of Tony really um, was the again the Northwest in 1985, and um, we were there's myself, Tony, and Alex George. Played him out for the, the first three positions for in the 500 class. My back wheel, I think the spindle or something broke on it going into York Airpin at great speed. And I remember going between Tony and Alex at a great rate of knots and hitting the telephone box. Really, really. I, can't, I can't remember. I wasn't really interested which one of them finished up winning the race. <laughs> really? I mean, you, you just wouldn't hear that, would you, these days? And Well, the TT perhaps an exception, but for somebody to be able to hit a telephone box, it's the kind of thing you don't hear anymore. Well, the amazing thing was I'd been round with Billy Nutt, who was then the clerk of the course, uh, in a safety car. And he was saying, do we need extra bills here and extra bills there? We went through all this. We got to York Corner. And he said, what about my telephone box? And it's, it's 40, 30, 40 yards from the corner. I said, no one's going to hit that, Billy. Because I should have kept my mouth shut. You did. So I was <laughs> oh, yeah. And the only reason I hit it was the thing, the back, I couldn't steer it. it the, the back wheel was, it sort of broke loose somehow and it was it was zigzagging everywhere and I had no control where I, where I finished up at. Anyway, but, but there you go. So. Does, does, it hurt, does it hurt quite a lot to hit a telephone box at speed? I guess it does, doesn't it, Mick? It, it certainly hurt my career with the TT being the following week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that, yeah it, that's not it, good. It, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't good. But there you go. That's, that, that's probably the worst break I've had in my career. So um, I, I, I can't complain. And obviously, like yourself, uh, Tony Rutter had a particularly bad accident in 1985, didn't he, at Monswick Park in Barcelona? He did. I was at the same meeting. Tony was doing the Formula 2 on the Ducati, on the works Ducati. And at the time, on, in the Formula 2, he was just about invincible. And uh, I mean, I remember Montjuic, and it, I'd never been there before, and I must admit, I didn't like it. I mean, I, I used to love racing around the roads, uh, Macau and, and, the, and the Northwest and the Ultra and all these things, but Montjuic, I just did not like the look of. Um, and Tony just made one mistake, and it it, it eventually, well, effectively stopped his career. Yeah, broken hip, I think it was, wasn't it? Particularly That's bad. Right. One. But um, yeah, I yeah, know James yeah. Whittam, a good friend of yours, and obviously my co-commentator, but he had a broken hip as well once, and he said that was definitely his worst injury. Yes. Pretty yeah. nasty. Well, James was always lucky because it landed on his head, and that was the safest place to land for James. <laughs> oh, that explains <laughs> a lot then, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Tony Rutter, just to obviously, well, there's so many stories, but yeah, a great name lost. But as you said, hard but fair, Mick. And that's the kind of person you want to watch and you want to race against, hard but fair. Yeah, always good value for money. And I mean, and Tony, he actually, although he did ride the bigger bikes a little bit, he excelled on the 250 and 350 and then the Formula 2 Ducati. He wasn't, I think it's fair to say he wasn't a big bike man, but he, did, he had nearly all his success mm. on the smaller bikes. And he really suited them. Bit of a Nieto type thing. Yeah, it was quite light stature and um, as hard as they come, hard as nails. Yeah, and obviously all our thoughts with, with the family at the moment, with Michael. But it's just a shame, isn't it, when you hear of such a great name lost like that? It is. And I mean, unfortunately, we get into a stage where it's, you know, it seems to happen more and more to people around it. Yeah, it's yeah, off, yeah. off the perch like... Um, yeah, poor old Tony. It will be missed. It will be missed. But it, it, in fairness... His illness, he never really recovered from it. So no. I think he's had some fairly hard in recent years, although I didn't really know him as a friend, it would appear that, you know, he's had it fairly hard over the last few years. 
Yeah, and as I say, all thoughts with Michael and with the whole family and all of uh, their friends as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. As for yourself, Mick, you've worked with some amazing names over the years, but let's just talk about James Whittam and Steve Plater, first of all, because obviously they are commentary colleagues and uh, characters in their own rights. Um, you could call them both lunatics at times in the <laughs> nicest possible way, but they're great guys, obviously. But you must have a lot more stories than I have about Whittam and Plater. Yeah, I mean, I was in team management from 19, no, about 1986, 87 until about 2004. And yeah. in that time, I was at, with Suzuki. Um, I had James there. And then working with Plater at Honda. And um, they're both different people, but they both have the same thing. They both have this unbelievable want. Yes. I may have said it before, but my in my opinion... If you've got a hundred percent want and a hundred percent ability, then you've got the chance of becoming a multi world champion. I mean, I had I had a hundred percent want in my career. That about eighty five percent ability, um, and both James and Steve had hundred percent want and just a little bit short on ability. And I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just being perfectly mm. honest. But the nice thing working with the both of them was every time they jumped on a bike, you got a hundred percent that's far better than having someone who's got a hundred percent ability and only 85% want because that's when you're dealing with people that can actually do it and they just don't go as quick as they possibly can. Then that's very frustrating. Yeah. I can imagine. One of the funniest stories about James and you're probably sick of me telling this one. <laughs> we were, we, we, we got a deal with, with, um, when we had the Durex uh, sponsorship, we had a deal with a company called Fieldshare making the leathers and it was a good deal there was no money in it but there's a good deal because we've got james and and phil Mower, god bless him and two 250 riders all in the same leathers and the, the team looked really good and um james for some reason didn't want these leathers whether he got another deal on the side or whatever uh and he's saying me i don't like these leathers they, they don't look safe that i think if i if i crash in I'm, they're gonna fall apart they're not comfortable and I'm saying, well, I'm sorry, James, but you're wearing them. <laughs> we, we got to the first practice at, at Mallory Park, never forget it. And he was on the on the Suzuki, on the work Suzuki. And he came after three laps. It's, and if James got, <laughs> he's actually got quite a long neck. He came back in for about three laps. And he said, Mick, I'm just sick of telling you, these leathers are so bloody uncomfortable. I'm not going to wear them again ever. And I looked at the back of his neck, and it's still got a coat hanger. Oh, really? What <laughs> in a classic. <laughs> I'm definitely going to use uh, that one on the TV. Know, he, he never, ever, never, ever complained for the full rest of the full year about the other being uncomfortable again. <laughs> what did he say when he <laughs> when he pointed that, out the coat hanger? Nothing. For, for once in his life, it's it's not often you can actually stop James talking, but for once in his life, he didn't say anything. Oh, that is a classic, <laughs> isn't it? I'm definitely going to ask him about that when I speak to him later. Uh, Tell me about the coat absolutely. hanger. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about James, though, is is that the James Whittam everybody sees on the TV or on the stage, if you know we have these events, yeah. it's the same James Whittam yeah. as you get at home, isn't it? He's, he's no different. Absolutely. Team management was never, ever a patch on racing mm. but if you said to me what's the highlight of your team managing it would be the early years with Suzuki there where with no budget we'd really got to fight for every penny and um, and there was just at one stage there was just James myself and Robert Cartwright Butch the mechanic and that was a work Suzuki team mm. and we just had so much fun and you know it, it was a, it was a hard brutal um, 
relationship in that the the the, the, the so much between the you know the, the three of us. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> all light hearted and and just got fun. The thing is, though, when you enjoy doing something, it's not work as such. Then I guess is it, and you will do even better as a general rule. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and um, at some I, I can't remember half the stuff that came out, but um, yeah, it was it was just fun all the way through. And Mick, just going back to what you said before about riders sometimes not wanting it as much, without naming names. I mean, you must have worked with people over the years as well who had the ability but didn't push as hard. And we see yes. it, don't we, time and time again with some of these young riders up and coming. You can tell they've got the ability, but they just don't want it too yeah. badly. Or maybe their parents want it more than they do. Or, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios. That must be so frustrating. Oh, don't, mention, uh, <laughs> don't, don't, mention, don't mention parents to me. <laughs> oh, oh, God. The poor little kids. I mean, I remember, well, it's still the same now. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, when... I'm sound like an old fart now, and I apologise for that. But when we came up, you know, we, had, we came up the hard way. We had to work for our own bikes and, and just do yeah. it bit by bit. Having that said that, you could actually, if you're any good at all, you could earn enough money to probably buy mm. bikes. But in this day and age now, the kids, you know, their dad's got the big motor home, they've got the paddock bikes, they've got whatever they want. And, and dad's saying, well, can we have one particular dad can we just cheat a bit on, we're doing some junior superstar, can we just cheat a bit with the engines? And I'm saying, well, if you do that, you're not doing your kid any favours because every level that you actually improve at, it gets harder and harder. Yeah. And if the kids are going to be no good, you're, you're as well finding out now, not three years down the line. Mm. Uh, but schoolboy dads, yeah, they're, they're a pain in the bum. We had, we had one or two in it. It's a shame, isn't it? Because I've, I've even seen this, at, you know, when I'm at circuit sometimes with some of the young up-and-coming riders and you see the parents getting into arguments with officials and yeah. all sorts of things like that. And I'm thinking, you're really not doing your son or daughter any favours at all here. No. I mean, I got to a stage where I, 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 once I understood the situation properly, I got to a stage where I said, right, well, we're taking your son on professionally. Uh, because what actually happened is that Martin Offler, he, he said we'd... At the time, they were doing a junior superstock. I don't know whether they're still doing or not. And, and Mark said to me, the idea, we don't particularly want to get a guy <clears throat> that can win the championship. We want to get a guy who's got the potential with tuition to go, go quite a long way. And, and on that particular occasion, we got, we got you know, a, a parent in who was pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually I said, look, we've got young so-and-so you brought him so far, you've done really well with him. But if you want him to progress, you've got to leave him with us. If you don't want to leave him with us, then yeah. continue as you're going on your own way. But you can't have it you can't have it both ways. Because obviously the sort of experience that a professional team can bring to the party is a lot more than Dak can. And yeah. we can see the long we can see the long picture. Well, Dad can't. He's, he's, I suppose the thing is, yeah. if you go and work in an office or a supermarket or wherever it might be, you start work in life, a restaurant, whatever, you don't take your mum and dad with you, do you? No. <laughs> well, it would be, nice, be nice not to. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, it's a funny one, though. But what yeah, about yeah. yourself, Mick? I mean, there's so, I mean, 19 years of racing, seven Isle of Man TTs, five British championships, five Macau Grand Prix wins, five yeah. Northwest 200 wins. Are there yeah. any out of those numerous achievements you rank up at the very top? Um, I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my first Grand Prix win for Kawasaki uh, on the 250. That, that was good fun. At the time I was racing, we did, I mean, now it's, it's very, it's very specialized. I mean, in, if you go back in history, back to the 1920s, 
you know, the guys, he'd have a bike, he'd write to work on it, he'd do a grass track, he'd do a scramble, maybe a bit of sprinting, maybe a race at Scarborough. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as the years have gone by, far more um, specialists. So now there aren't even very few people. I mean, like Plate is one of the last guys who could ride short circuit and, and the roads. I mean, Hickman is, is sort of, is just about there. But, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years, you had to do both to win a living at it. It's, it's, it's just changed completely. Yeah. I mean, like Freddie Spencer, it was the last guy to win two classes of Grand Prix. The best Marquez and people now, if we sort of said, right, we want you to do um, Moto 2 and Moto 1, they'd just look as if you'd gone stupid. It's, it's just gone so special. And it, and it could only go that way. There's, there's no alternative for that, really. It can only go that way. Funny you mention it because I was having a chat for last week's show with Mario Andretti about Sir Sterling Moss, who we obviously sadly like Rutter we've just lost recently, haven't we? But yeah, we were saying exactly the same thing about people like Moss, uh, Jim Clark, Jackie yeah. Stewart. They've all done sports cars, touring cars, yes. single seaters. And they were doing it in, in the same season often, weren't they? One weekend from the next. And they were winning yeah. in them all as well. That's right. I mean, one of, one of the problems is money. Uh, I mean, not that long ago in the sort of, late 70s and early 80s we had the transatlantic match races yeah and yeah. We, we would do i mean when we had the works kawasaki's there'd be two riders myself and barry ditchburn we'd have a mercedes van like which would be like a fairly medium-sized sprinter van we'd have a mechanic each and maybe a couple of people there just pals just helping out for the weekend we'd do brands Hatch friday um mallory sunday and alton park monday um, we'd have one bike each mm. and maybe a, a rolling chassis with some bits in case anyone went crashed and we could rebuild the bike up. And that was, that was cheap racing. I mean, now you'd need three or four days to put one event on and you'd need twice, well, four or five times the number of personnel there. That's why, I mean, at the time you could get Kenny Robertson people who were world champions coming to the match races. Yeah. But it couldn't happen now because it's the commitment to put that sort of budget together is so immense. They can't afford these guys having any problems anywhere else. Um, and it's, it's just down to finance. It's just sad that it's gone that way, really. It is, isn't it, really? I mean, how how great was it, Mick, to have people like Freddie coming over to Brands Hatch, winning those transatlantic... I mean, that's, that Brands Hatch race was one of the ones that really put Freddie on the map, wasn't it? But it must have been amazing that's to right. have all those guys together on one circuit. Yeah. I remember bringing... When Kevin Schwantz came to... Um, we did a match race thing at Donington. And I got a, a bike from, a, I've got him a Suzuki, and I got a, a bike from one of the, a dealer in Birmingham, so I can't remember the guy's name now. Mm. And, um, you know, that's fantastic. It just, it just wouldn't happen now, and it's just, it's, it's sad, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. And obviously, you've raced with, if I'm not mistaken, Mick, pretty much everyone, apart from Yamaha, haven't you? So you know that's how right. all, all the little yeah. funny things about all those manufacturers yeah. and how they all operate. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Yamaha, I mean, I, I rode Yamaha, along with, you know, Tony Rutter and people, 250s and 350s in the early 70s. And if I'm being perfectly honest, they were the better times because like in 73, 74, mm. there was prize money, you got start money. And um, as long as you're winning every weekend, you could actually make it quite a good living at it. And um, yeah. and there were no political problems. You know, we didn't have big sponsorship uh, commitments. You just went. I mean, I could go and do, I could go and do a few Grand Prix because that wasn't a close shop. I could go. To, I used to like Aston. I'd go to Hockenheim and Monza and 
and Sweden, Imatra, Imatra in Finland, and all these places, and then come back and earn some money at, at, at the local, the race mm. of the year and places like that. And it was great. You just did what you want, picked and chose and did what you wanted. You can't do that now. Yeah, and people used to go off to Italy as well, didn't Rimini and all down that coast, the Mizano area, because they yeah. paid particularly well, didn't they, for their prize money? They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it has, it has changed. Okay. And um, I mean, but, but having I said that, the way that with television and the way it's all done now, the entertainment's to a much bigger viewing audience. Yeah. yeah. And from that point, it's not all bad now. It's just, just change. I'm not saying it's, I'm not mourning about it. It's just changed. It's changed completely. Yeah. But I mean, I yeah. just, I love watching World Superbike. I love watching MotoGP. And when I was riding, you couldn't see that. You know, you maybe get a few pages in Motorcycle News or Motorcycle Weekly. And that was that was the only way you saw what was happening in the world. Now you look on your phone, you look on your iPad; it's there for you. So really, it, there's been a lot of good things come out of it in the last few years. Yeah, and back then, obviously, people wouldn't even know who'd often won the Grand Prix until Wednesday, would they? When the papers That's came right. out. That's right. It's a bit like a bit like the Battle of Waterloo. They didn't find out for about three days afterwards, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I don't know whether you know uh, fellow Yorkshire and Martin Rains, who was the official statistician in MotoGP for a long time, stopped a few years ago regularly. Uh, but Martin is a good friend of mine, and he said he used to love going and getting the paper, like so many people did, and seeing what Yano Saarinen had done, and yes. you know, hearing uh, the news from these. And he said it almost felt like these were mythical figures, people like Saarinen and Pasolini yes. racing yes. these bikes in these exotic places. Just the good, good times. But, you know, the guys who are riding now will look back in 30 years' time and say, yeah, we had the best times. If you'd been speaking to Jim Redmond and whatever, they had the best times. Yeah. You know, I think whichever time you're in, that's, your best, that's the best time. What's your opinion on the danger aspect, Mick? Because when I was speaking with Mario Andretti last week, we were talking about something Sterling Moss always used to say, that he did feel racing should be dangerous because that's what gives it this edge. Uh, bike racers usually tend to have a slightly different opinion because it's far more dangerous, again, than even cars, isn't it? But I don't know. What's your opinion on it? Does it always need to be dangerous? I think, yeah, there's... I mean, Formula, if you look at Formula 1, the fascination mm. there is that you know, there are people being paid tens of millions of pounds and there's a it's almost a, an unreal world and it's just nice to get a glimpse of it yeah yeah motorcycle racing even at motor gp level it's 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 a little bit like that but not quite but the nice thing is the motor gp and, and world superbike is that the racing is that good yeah that it actually w without being too dangerous it actually works pretty good i mean we don't want now television coverage is as good as it is you don't see people being killed every weekend like happened in the 60s no, absolutely in not. No. i mean it just it wouldn't mm. it would not go down well at all i mean what was that like because people were being sad sad as it is to say but it is fact that people were being killed all the time weren't they and you must have witnessed some horrible moments yourself i mean how do you just plow on i suppose there's the financial aspect but it must be in the back of every rider's mind that it could be you next it isn't it, you know it's not it is not a financial aspect it's 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 the want we mentioned earlier you know Mm, you, you, yeah. I mean, when, when I was racing at the TT, for example, and people were knocking it and saying it shouldn't be allowed, it's dangerous and whatever, I'm thinking, just go away because it's what I want to do. And in fact... Yeah, that's true. Nobody's being forced to compete in it, are they? Indeed. That's right. I mean, the, the best thing that ever happened to the TT was actually losing its world championship status because then people went because they wanted to go, not because they had to go. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we just going off that at a minute. Um, we, me and a, a, a pal of mine, Ed Roberts, we resurrected Oliver's Mount at Scarborough yeah. last year. It, it, had, it had gone downhill, and the, the, the guy that ran it before he had health problems, and it just it just didn't work out. And uh, myself and Eddie got together last year, and we got that going. And of course, that's a that's the only pure road race circuit in England. And um, the first thing we did, we put a massive injection of money in and got the place a lot safer. But that's that's road racing. And I can justify myself being involved in that. Yeah. Even though it's a bit more dangerous, say, than circuit racing, because it's going to happen. Whether I'm involved or not, it's going to happen because people want to ride and race motorbikes. But at least with the sort of experience that people like Eddie and myself have got, we can make it a lot safer. And that's to me, that's a justification in being involved in it. All the time that I team manage, I could justify it. Not you're sort of encouraging people to. You're in, no, you're not encouraging. You're helping people to race motorcycles, which is dangerous. But because of the experience that we've we've had, we can make it as safe as it possibly can. And, and if you get someone in that doesn't have that experience and it isn't as safe, what I'm saying is I could justify me actually being there and and, and being involved yeah, in it. Yeah. Almost prevent the accidents happening instead of just simply reacting to them happening in a way. Yes, that's right. I mean, I remember being at the top of Bray Hill in 1986, the year, the first year I wasn't riding. And I thought, why are all these fit young fellows going down Bray Hill? And some of them may not come back or they may have an accident. And I thought, you idiot, you've done it for 19 years, you know very well why it's because they want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's funny though that even you stood there, Mick, the year after you'd retired and even had that thought going through your mind. Yeah, you, you question it, but whatever you're racing, you know, I didn't want anyone telling me that I couldn't do it. I, I just wanted to do it. And um, I must, but I must admit, all the time I team managed, I was a lot happier with if I got riders that didn't have family. I mean, I, really? I, yeah. I, I found that I couldn't have put 100% into it if I'd have had family, but people are different. You know, people, People's makeup mentality is different. The the main thing, the, the old cool thing about motorcycling is that everyone everyone that's involved in it is hundred percent for it. It's 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 a sport that's a passion, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It isn't something yeah. that you do one. It, it's something you don't do it one minute and then go on to do something else the following minute. It's it's in your it's in your it's in your blood, you know. Yeah, couldn't agree because it's quite funny from our point of view from the media side. You you occasionally get someone who might sort of pass through and then disappear again. But most of those people, if not all of them are there because they love it, aren't they? At the end of the day, it's passion fueled. I mean, you, you look at the best guy in the world, Valentino Rossi, and he's, he's, his passion is there. He's, yeah. you know, he's, he, he just wants to be part of it, doesn't he? Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? When so many people say, "Oh, what's he still doing it for? Why is he going on?" But he's doing it because he loves it, isn't he? What else would he be doing? Absolutely, he'd do it for free anyway, yeah. probably, yeah. wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if it keeps on much longer, it may have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, to me, just about everyone that watches Grand Prix every weekend, they all want Valentino to win. Mm. Even if he's lying down about 15th place, you think, oh, j- just something could happen. Let's see a bit of the old yes, Valley coming back yeah. and let's see him win it. Um, and that's that's brilliant, isn't it? What a character. I mean, that name, Rossi, is is bigger than the whole MotoGP brand itself, isn't it? There's so many people who won't know what MotoGP is, but they know who Valentino Rossi is. That's right, yeah. Huge yeah. brand. I mean, it, we, we, we had an Englishman called Sheen who was in, in a similar vein, really. Yes, yeah. And the interesting thing is, you know, you talk about charisma. 
And if you could actually find what the formula for charisma is and bottle it, you'd make a bloody fortune. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, you get Joey Dunlap at charisma, and yet it was not any good in front. It was not good with the media, but he he had charisma. There's no particular set formula for it. Mm. You get these people who, for some reason or other, the crowd just love for all different reasons. And it's it's just magic that there's there's no set there's no set formula for it. Yeah, it's true. It's like Barry and Stephanie Sheen were like the David and Victoria Beckham of their day, weren't they? Everyone knew who they were, no matter whether you watch racing right. or not. Everyone knows Barry Sheen. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it, I mean, Barry was. He did a lot for motorcycling. In fact, the comical thing was, I mean, Barry he fell off at the TT the first time they went there, and then. For the rest of his life, every time the TT came round, he knocked it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember some of the um, the TT committee came to see me and said, "What are we going about this fellow Sheen?" I said, "What are you know?" He said, "Well, every, coming up the TT every year, he gets in the national papers and he's, he's knocking the TT, saying it's dangerous." I said, "Well, how much are you paying him because he's, he's giving you more publicity than anyone else put together? Obviously, <laughs> yes, guys put together. Yeah. yeah, he'd bring a lot to the event, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about yourself, Mick? I wanted to ask. Obviously, you, you had the JL on your helmet, didn't you, for Jim Lee all those yes. years? The number ten was there any particular reason you ran the number ten? Number ten was I was born on the tenth of July, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not superstitious. But at that particular time, because you earned your money by start money and by being popular um it was important to be recognized and if you keep the same number and the same crash helmet design you you, you're more recognizable and that was the reason for it Uh, i mean and and also does the same doesn't it with number 46 yes absolutely and you think of ayrton senna with his yellow helmet don't you You, yeah you know there's certain things you just think of that's right that's right so it was just 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 really so you'd be marketed i mean and what helped me in my career an awful lot was Kawasaki because that had a very strong image as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes good sense then. And who were your heroes, Mick, as you were growing up? How did it sort of start for you? Was it Halewood, people like that? Um, I would think maybe Salonen was my number one man. Okay. Um, mm. He was certainly the fastest man I ever rode against. I mean, I, I've seen Salonen and, and, and Phil Reed, another, another guy that I have a lot of um, admiration for. Um I mean, I remember watching Salon and Reed <clears throat> at Hockenheim, and Jano was on the 500 four-cylinder Yamaha, and Reed was on the um, four-cylinder MV Augusta. Ah, oh, just what a fantastic race! You know, I remember Salon on the on the infield. He had it completely sideways, and he just never shut it off. Wow, wow! I mean, Jano came to Scarborough. I mean, at that time, I could I, I could win most things at Scarborough, and I thought. And we'd, I'd done a few Grand Prix. I'd finished second to him at Silverstone and places. And I thought, right, on my home territory, I'll have him this weekend. And unknown to me, he'd been at Scarborough for a week before and, <laughs> and borrowed a bike from a local dealer and done hundreds of laps. And um, Really? Had he really? He was really yeah. thinking outside the oh, box then, wasn't so, he? So, such a professional guy. And uh, I didn't beat him. I didn't beat him. But uh, yeah, but it was, it was just so fast. And of course, he had he had these handlebars. They weren't flat across; they were, they were down. And so your your hands were down, nearly against the um, the suspension. And, and and we all went through a stage of all putting the same handlebars on, you know. Mm. And um, he was a, he was a great great guy. And I mean, although there was a factory Yamaha rider, 
um, he did it a lot of he did it sort of on his own a lot of the time with a, a, a lovely guy called Vince French who used to go around and travel with him round all the, the circuits. And uh, Diana had just got killed too soon, you know, just one of those terrible things that happened. But uh, you know, who knows where he would have finished up at. But that that really was, wasn't it? That really was terrible, wasn't it? Because for anyone listening who maybe doesn't know the backstory, obviously uh, they were first and second, weren't they, Mick, in 1972 in the 250cc yes. World Championship, Sirenen and Renzo Pasolini. They were one point apart. And then we got to yes. Monza 73. And the general feeling is some oil had gone down, I think, hadn't yeah. it, on the circuit at the Curva Grande in the previous race. I mean, you'd never hear of this happening anymore. The, the riders wanted, I mean, I was in that race, and the riders actually wanted to hold the race up until they got the oil sorted out. And the organisers wouldn't hear of it because they've got quite a large crowd. Yeah. <clears throat> and we, it just we, makes it even worse, doesn't it, to oh, think there was actually a massive debate about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we set off in the race, and I think I was about second or third row. And I was always good at starting. And luckily for me, I stalled. I, I, the bike started, and I stalled it. And I probably lost about, it seemed like a lifetime, but probably about two seconds before I got it going again. And the initial bunch had just gone into first corner, which from the start at Monza, the Curva Grande just... You're rocking on, you've been sort of fifth gear. Yeah, because this and is pre, time, pre chicane days, of course, isn't it? Oh, Straight to yeah, the cover. Yeah, cool. absolute, absolute mayhem. And um, of course, uh, and it was unfortunate, but Pasolini and um, and Yana were together and they, they both went down. To, I mean, there must have been about 20 bikes. It was one of the, probably the biggest crash I've ever been involved in, but number of bikes down. But they were together and they were both killed, which is really absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. So there was just nothing, as someone who was involved in that collision, in that crash, that incident, there was just absolutely no chance of avoiding it. Absolutely none. Um, the, the funny thing for me was that I remember going into the um, a Curva Grande and there were petrol tanks coming over my head. Oof. Um, the bikes coming past me. And normally I would have got off and I just, for some reason I thought, no, just stay on the bike. And I, I stayed on the bike and missed all the debris and got through it. Um, but <clears throat> just a terrible, just a terrible, terrible day. Well, I mean, isn't that strange though, Mick, when you think about, I don't know whether you believe in fate and things like that, but had you not stalled the bike on the line, you may well have been involved in that and seriously injured or worse. I would have been, yeah. Yeah. You know, all the time, you know, when people said to you, said to you many times, oh, you must be really brave or, or stupid or whatever. And you just, I've always believed that, you know, I've been a big believer in fate. When your time's up, your time's up. Mm. And so you might as well crack on and do whatever you're doing. You know, it, it just would, I, I've always believed that if you're going to die tomorrow and you you have a premonition about it, yeah. and you go and just lay in bed, you're going to have a heart attack. So you might as well crack on and do what you're doing. Yeah, and just get on with it, uh, not overthink things. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Can you remember a change in mood after that? after that incident at Monza, bearing in mind that, I mean, it, doesn't it just make it feel so unnecessary when you think there was already a huge discussion about the oil having gone down and that race still started? Was there a big shift in mood after that? Well, I mean, we, we just, we've eventually just packed up, went home, probably, I think that was the last Grand Prix did until the Swedish and the finished at the end of the year. I just went home and, and did my Mallory Parks and Brands Hatches and all mm, those sort mm. of things. You just got to get on with it, you know. It, that was it's what you wanted to do. Someone getting killed wasn't going to stop you doing it. It's a horrible thing to say, but it's the truth. 
Well, I suppose that's the thing. I suppose if you start overthinking it, then that is the moment to hang up the leathers, isn't it? I guess. That's right. And and the thing is, no matter how you know, it's getting a bit morbid, is this, but no matter how safe you make anything, you can always have freak accidents happening. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if if aircrafts can crash out of the sky with all the technology and development they're going to them, then mm, that's true. People riding cars or uh, motorbikes, it, it, it occasionally it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is one of those sad facts of life, but it's true. I mean, it can happen at any time. It's never, it's, it can always be safer, but it's never going to be 100% safe, is it? You can make it as safe as you want, and there's always just the odd thing that's going to happen. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, who would have, we were, for all of us, Mark, we've got four meetings on this year, and then this bloody virus thing comes along, and who would have foreseen that, you know? Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, just before we go, actually, what's your take on that whole thing, Mick? I mean, how are you coping with it? I mean, like you say, who on earth would ever have believed this was going to happen? It is unbelievable. It's surreal, isn't it? It's not. It's not, Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it, it is not that bad. I'm a little riding my trials bike every weekend, which obviously we can't do. But I have a nice workshop, which I potter with the old bikes. And I find I do. I spend a lot of time in there. And of course, the weather being so good. Imagine if this virus had happened <clears throat> like last November when the weather wasn't so good, it would have been terrible. Yeah, I, that's I, true. My heart goes out to people who are living in cities or in flats and things. I mean, we're lucky we're in a rural area and it's 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 not a lot different, if I'm being honest. But mm, people who yeah. are living down, it must be terrible. Yeah, in a big city or something, it must be very taxing times. Yeah, I can yeah. absolutely imagine it. Well, thanks for that, Mick. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Obviously, it's uh, on a sad note in some ways, of course, when we think about the loss of Moss and Rutter, these great names recently. But it's nice just to, yeah. to celebrate what they've done, isn't it? And um, and remember them as the heroes they are. It is, it is, it is. And uh, if, we, if we're chatting again at any, any time, um, I'll tell you about Plato. Okay, it was well. the end of my life. Oh well, okay. That's for another time. Okay, that might be a whole podcast in itself. Okay, so we've got that on record now, then, Mick. That is recorded, going out in the show. So there's more Steve Plater stories coming our way, are there? That absolutely are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I look forward to that. Good man. Bye. Bye. Well, what a really lovely man. I've not actually met Mick Grant in person, so it was a pleasure there to chat with him on the phone. Perhaps the greatest pleasure, of course, was learning of that glorious story involving my co-commentator James Whittam and the coat hanger incident at Mallory Park. Now, of course, we're professionals here, so we had to give Whit the right to reply, which he's done by way of WhatsApp voice message. Now, not all of the language could be played in here, so let's join in mid-sentence and get the Whittam verdict as to what exactly went on there. I mean, it was a big wooden coat hanger as well. It was a cold day. And I'd just got a new back protector and I put me le- flipped my leathers over my shoulders, put me black, slipped my back protector in and I wasn't, wasn't comfy. But I never took my leathers off all day. I thought it was just an uncomfy back protector. Anyway, when I took my leathers off at the end of the day, big wooden coat hanger fell out. <laughs> Still went quick. Well, would you believe it? No more hanging around for James Whittam then. Did you get it? That's all from us for now. This has been Greg Haynes and special thanks once again to Mick Grant for this week's interview. Please do subscribe if you haven't already to the Eurosport Full Throttle podcast. And don't forget you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on the Eurosport website, amongst other places. We'll be back in two weeks on Monday, the 18th of May. And uh, by the way, James Whitten, if you're listening, don't forget to pop into Specsavers next time you're allowed out. Ha ha ha.